0: welcome to the Art and Science of Developing Athletes. Uh, as you probably have guessed by now, I am not Michael Sagas. Uh, my name is Christine Wegner, and I am also a faculty member in the Department of Sport Management at the University of Florida. And I look at sports and the athlete more from a sociological perspective, so social forces that affect who has access to sport and, and what access they have. And today, we have a very special guest in studio, Dr. Angel Mason, who is the Director of Athletics at Berry College in Rome, Georgia. And she's also the founder and CEO of Real AD LLC. And in 2022, she was named the Nike Executive of the Year for NCAA Division III Colleges. And today, we're gonna be talking about Title IX, uh, which has had a huge impact from a social perspective on athletic development, for both boys and girls, men and women, since it became a law in 1972. Uh, But before we start, Angel, do you want to talk a little bit more about yourself? Sure. Thanks so much for having
1: me. Um, This is very exciting. I've enjoyed being able to come to campus and spend some time, so this is a treat for me as well. You know, I am a fan of sport in general and the opportunities that it brings to people. And so being able to see what UF is doing with their student athletes and being able to see firsthand what the 50th anniversary looks like for women's sports here at UF is is pretty exciting. So it's been great to go around and just check out the campus, but also to just see all the student athletes and the way in which athletics has evolved in the way that you know colleges and universities are serving students. So I'm excited to be here um, and I'm excited for the topic today.
0: Awesome. So I I really want to frame this conversation uh, around Title IX from the inside out. I want to get your perspective on it starting from the personal and then really fanning out to talk about the athlete level uh, and the institutional level and then even thinking beyond sport. And, you know, you and I, we're the first generation that grew up with Title IX. Sorry to age us to our audience and listeners. But... We're really in the first cohort of of athletes who really had access to at least some sport from an early age. We didn't always have a choice in what we participated in, but uh, we had that access. And you and I both played basketball growing up. That's how we know each other. Uh, And when we were in high school, we saw the creation of not one, but two professional women's basketball leagues. Uh, so first and foremost, Title IX is is personal for for girls and women and, and for you and I, especially. Uh, how would you describe the impact that Title IX has had on your own development as an athlete?
1: Yeah, I mean, honestly, I don't know life without athletics, right? I don't know life without sport activity. Um, it is central to everything that I've done. You know, I, I spent my childhood on the north side of Chicago and back and forth into Evanston, Illinois, and Everything that we did was around sport. Any free time that was available, we're at a local park. Rather, it is the summer or the middle of winter, and you're shoveling off enough to be able to get to one basket. You know, it's outside at the parks. It's the local softball. You know, anything that we could do as a family. Um, Anytime we had family time, it was surrounded around sport. And I was lucky enough to be raised in a family full of women. And my grandmother, that was her thing. That's how we bonded. That's how we spent time together. It was around sports. So the idea that there was an era where sport wasn't accessible is is not one that I can really process that well. And so I've heard stories, of course, and had chances to sit with women that have gone through it firsthand. But for me, it's, you know, sport is a part of my life. And honestly, it's probably one of the largest parts of it. Because sport has given me access to a world that I didn't know was accessible to me growing up. And I don't know where I'd be without it. You know, I just I don't know where I would be without having sport.
0: And when you say the world, you mean like little world, right? Because you went <laughs> and played overseas for a while. Yeah,
1: the, I mean, basketball predominantly has been the sport that has opened up the most doors for me. Um, I've played travel leagues as a kid with the Chicago Demons. Um, And then also played with my high school in some leagues. And then, you know, having Coach Gators in Chicago, who's like the first AU program to be sponsored by Nike, Um, you know, being able to play with these teams. I saw the United States before I was even hitting high school. You know, I was traveling to different states. I was getting on planes and, you know, just experiencing life differently. And then, you know, got to go to college and in college, played at Butler University and, We traveled all over the place, you know, I mean, it's why you don't go home for Thanksgiving (laughs) because you get to travel and you get to experience these places. And, you know, my coaches were always great about us having some life experiences when we went to places. And so that was amazing. And then I made great teammates whose families gave me access to their world. Um, So, you know, my first time being in Australia was with the travel league. Uh, My first time being in Greece was with a teammate that had family there. You know, I eventually went overseas and played in Reykjavik, Iceland, and in Madrid, Spain, and so I'm I'm living in a place that I didn't even know was a real place, but it's beautiful. You know, the Blue Lagoon is there, in case you didn't know. Um, <laughs> and and also, you know, j- just like seeing life through other people's lenses, which mine w- were very narrow, right? Like you are a product of where you're raised and what you grow up with and around, and sport made it so that I wasn't just a product of the north side of Chicago or the fifth ward of Evanston, you know, so I I don't, I literally don't know where I'd be without sport.
0: Same. (laughs) Would you say that that experience with sport is what made you want to go work in sport, go into coaching and administration?
1: You know, Honestly, I so when I graduated, um, I started out like working in consulting. It's what I went to school for, and you know I was like, this is what I'm going to do, and I'm going to make great money. And you know all of that was true, um, but I, I hated the job, and it is one where you're predominantly alone and evaluating other people, and then really making decisions without having more than about two hours max with any one person. And so when I went back to my alma mater and and talked to Some people have been influential in my life. Um, My senior associate, John Hind, Miss Alfreda Goff, that was at the conference office. I'm like, I really don't know what I want to do. We did all of these tests, all this stuff. And they're like, you should get into athletic. And I'm like, yeah, I could coach basketball. And literally, they're like, you should get into administration. I'm like, no, like, what do you guys even do? You basically show up to my games. Like, I don't want to do that. I don't want to just show up to these games. (laughs)
0: I'm sure your, your perspective is a little different now. <laughs> Just a smidge
1: different at this point. But I thought I was going to be a coach. I figured, all right, fine, I'll, I'll coach. And um, it was literally the place where we met at Vassar College, where I had the Division Three Ethnic Minority and Women's Internship Grant and was at Vassar College. And it was an operations internship and coaching. And so basketball was the sport. And I thought that's going to be my segue into coaching. And, and honestly, it was, you know, I, I got to take over as the head coach there, went back to my alma mater underneath my head coach as an assistant. And it was at my alma mater where I love Butler University. Love it. Um, there's no place in the world to play basketball like Hinkle Fieldhouse. You know, I love that place. I loved my head coach. Beth Kuchar is, is one in a million, nobody better and I felt like I was missing something. You know, the, the young women that were on that team, I got to pour into them. But every year I was going to have about 15 young women that I could pour into. When I was at Vassar, I had hundreds of student athletes, young men and young women that I got to pour into. They got to see me as a part of their team, that we got to build what leadership meant together. And that's when I made the decision that I'm not a career coach. I need to be in administration.
0: And here we are.
1: <laughs> and here we are.
0: <laughs> so I think that's a, that's a pretty good segue actually, right, to your life as an administrator. You were an associate AD for uh, many years and, and now you're the director of athletics. You're sitting mm-hmm. in the chair yeah. right, uh, at Barry College. Um, and, and you see Title IX now from a very different perspective, right? You see it as an administrator. So, mm-hmm. you know, seeing where Title IX is now, many, many years, not going to say how many after we have come up with it. Uh, but uh, what, what benefits do you see that Title IX still gives to your athletes and, and what challenges?
1: Yeah, you know, I think the, the biggest benefit that Title IX still has is access, right? I think we've, we've hit this point where we just, we don't know what it's like to be without. And, and we're in an era where Access doesn't seem as if it's something we could not have, and so I think that's still the largest impact that it's had. You know, it is the access to education, the access to sport, um, you know, the access to coaches, right? Like pre Title IX, you didn't have access to coaches. Most of our stuff was recreational, right? And so, yes, we still have recreational no sport in, in college and in, in universities, but. You have access to varsity sports, to professional coaches, to support services that unheard of prior to, you know. And so I think the biggest thing that we still have that we don't understand how much of an advantage it is currently is the access. That's by far the biggest, the biggest advantage. And then the other part of it is, my goodness, look at how many young women are now aspiring to be collegiate athletes. It is a part of what they're planning to do. It's a part of where they want to be. And on the flip side of that, you are seeing young men seeing women as people that can be their coaches. They can be their administrators. They can be their athletic trainers, right? Not just academic advisors. And we're not just compliance people, right? We are in the trenches where the officials that you're seeing on the sidelines, we're running your statistics. We're doing your play by play. You're coming to us for advice. We're mentoring and advising. Now it's a place where both young men and young women are seeing the advantages of having a diverse experience in athletics and outside of athletics, in in higher ed in general. And that's something that Title IX has absolutely made happen. And I know we spend so much time with the focus really being in sport, right? Everybody, I mean, I still know people who think Title IX was put into place for athletics and I'm like, that's absolutely incorrect, but we see it in sport, but now we're also seeing how sport continues to build out the way that we perceive women in access and leadership and so on and so on and so on. And I think the biggest part that I'm proud to see is when I look at young men who are seeking out women first for advice or for mentorship, or when I do a search and I ask student athletes, you know, what are some of the traits or attributes that you're looking for in your next head coach? And I'm not having to tell them that traits and attributes aren't genderized. They just are. So when you tell me and and throw those pronouns in there, you've already decided, what the next coach should be. And, and we're starting to get into this place now where I'm not even having to have that conversation anymore. So I'm proud of those things that Title IX is doing. And some of it is just happening. And we're not noticing it, because we don't really see ourselves without access anymore.
0: Yeah. And <clears throat> one of the things that, uh, you know, you t- just touched on this idea of how Title IX benefits boys and men, in addition to the way it Uh, benefits girls and women. And I think, you know, one of the other misconceptions about Tide Online is that it is a benefit to girls and women to the detriment, right, of of boys and men. This idea that it's taking away from boys' programs, men's programs in order to accommodate for girls and women to be able to participate. Yeah. And
1: at the end of the day, that all comes down to Mm decision-making. And so if you have a problem with someone, have a problem with your leadership and their decision-making. There's no part of Title IX that says you have to take anything away from young men. What it says is that you have to provide access as well, equitably, to young women. That's it. So if you're choosing to remove something from men because of that, that's a choice. That's a leadership decision that's being made. That's not Title IX making that decision, right? So we're confusing where decisions are being made at, and that is not one that Title IX is making. The people sitting in the chair and those other chairs are deciding that, you know what, I don't want to invest these extra resources in this area. So we're just going to remove those resources from here and put them over there and we can check the box, right? What part of what we do is meant to just check a box? The most unsuccessful individuals are people that just check boxes, right? So we didn't, this wasn't created to check a box. You know, that's a choice that leadership is making.
0: Mm-hmm. Absolutely. What would you say to someone who, you know, you talk a lot about access, What would you say to someone who says, well, if Title IX has done all these things, then why do we still need it?
1: Oh, why do we still need it? Because if we don't actually learn from history, then we revert right back to it. Title IX was put into place because we did not want to provide access, because we wanted to prioritize, and we wanted to prioritize based on social norms that we had put in place, based on the places that we thought women and others should have in our society. And so if we remove the accountability of doing what we should do, then we will most likely resort back to it, right? Like we will most likely resort back to it because people do what they're comfortable with. It's the same reason why we struggle so much of having conversations around difficult topics, such as Title IX, race, gender, ethnicity, right? We don't want to talk about those things. We want the tough things to just be behind the curtain and we want everything to be pretty. And life isn't pretty, right? Challenges are what make us who we're going to be. And that's why people love athletes when it comes to going into career field, because athletes grow resilience. They learn how to fail and bounce back. They know how to create goals. They learn how to be a part of a team and strive towards something. You remove something that is holding people accountable, the root of parenthood, the root of management, accountability. You remove that level of accountability, and we are almost guaranteeing ourselves to backslide.
0: Yeah, it's a shame that Title IX, for all of the the benefits that it's provided, it hasn't for some people it hasn't changed hearts and minds about where the resources should be allocated.
1: A- absolutely not. You know, of um, <laughs> a, a mentor that has frequently said, and anytime time he says it, I'm like, I get it, I get it, I get it. But he's like, you know, you can't legislate morale, right? Like, right. You can't legislate that, but you can put some things in place to be able to try and have a level of accountability or some control mechanisms to not do harm, and that—that's really the purpose here. We're attempting to not do harm based on gender.
0: Yeah. So, would you say that that's one of the biggest challenges that you still see uh, around Title IX, or are there others that you see as well? Well,
1: I would say the the largest challenge that I see is people's overall lack of understanding. It, it tr- it's a lack of understanding, and I think it's a lack of understanding because of all of these misconceptions about what the focus of Title IX is. Um, I think we spend a great deal of time shaking one hand about athletics, 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 just so that we're not paying attention to the fact that, hey, before this, like women didn't even have access to education, not just higher education, right? Like did not have access mm-hmm. to education in some places. But then these are the people that we believe, oh, they still could lead. They could still do all this. Well, well, how? When you're saying that they're not even worthy of education, right? So I think that that is the biggest hurdle right now still. Um, and I think some of the other hurdles is as we start addressing other aspects of Title IX, there's a great deal of confusion. Because when you say Title IX, people think sport good, bad, or indifferent, unless you are in higher ed or in a realm where they really talk about it deeply, they think sport. So when additional legislation is coming around, around sexual assault and being having these different requirements of training and mandated reporting and all these things, people are like, okay, okay, what is that? Why are we doing this now? And it's like, well, it's not doing it now. You should have been doing this, right? You should have been doing this a long time ago. We just now have different checks and balances that people are being held accountable to, but it's one of those things where if you don't continue to address it, it takes on kind of this life of its own and people rewrite the narrative over and over and over and over again. That is not true.
0: Yeah. Have you noticed any misconceptions even within sport around what Title IX is supposed to do versus what it does? Well, yeah, because uh,
1: the, the language is, you know, we're here to, it's supposed to be equitable, right? all of my academics out there, there's a difference between equitable and equal, right? And so when you start looking at equitable, how are you defining equitable? You know, and not all things are the same, obviously, um, but how you define equity within your program, that still comes down to leadership decision. There's some parameters around that, but it's not dollar for dollar, right? Um, Just because you build this facility doesn't mean you have to build that facility right? We go back to access. We build a football stadium. It's a football stadium, but that is also where track and field takes place. That is also where graduation is. That is also where clubs and activities do ultimate Frisbee tournaments. That is also and on and on and on and on, right? So is it a football facility or not? And some people will determine that differently. Right. And so now when we start thinking about how do we equitably serve our student athletes, how do we equitably serve our students on our campus? You need leadership that are setting baselines that they can actually hold themselves accountable to and that they're OK being called to the carpet on. Right. If, if you feel like you can be called to the carpet on it. OK, great. But then you have to be willing to deal with whatever that backlash is if you aren't truly being equitable to the baseline that you've set. And it is not equal. It is not dollar for dollar. You know. Now, I do think that there are times where people use Title IX in order to get what they want, and because there's still this fear and stigma connected to it, there are some times where people don't actually want to have the difficult conversation. You know, if I have someone say, "Well, you didn't do this for the women's team, so you're in violation of Title IX," we're going to have a very long conversation. So I understand how you got there because I'm confident that I'm not, right? But I'm gonna make you have to actually verbalize what I am in violation of. And by the time people walk that back, if you're doing the right thing, you're not, you're not afraid to have that conversation and you're not afraid to have somebody walk that back. But if you're not doing the right thing, you're like, go that way.
0: <laughs> yeah, well, let's talk a little bit about equity then a little bit more, right? Because it is, it is about equity and I think a lot of times, people shy away from equity, right? Because equal is easy, right? Mm -hmm. Because equal is like an equation. One side of the equation needs to look exactly like the other. Mm -hmm. But equity is about giving you the resources that you need, Mm -hmm. right? So, in your example of the football stadium, right? Soccer doesn't need a football stadium, Mm -hmm. (laughs) right? Right? Soccer needs a place to play that provides the same kind of uh, potential for success, (laughs) Right. Right? And however you define success as a program, right, here at the University of Florida, championships, right? So Mm -hmm. it's providing every team with what they need for championship success, right? Right. Um, But there's a lot of, um, again, equity is about support, right? Mm -hmm. Um, And there are a lot of issues around figuring out what is equitable, Mm -hmm. right? And, you know, one of the newest sort of issues Facing the NCAA is uh, NIL, or name, image, and likeness, right? Sorry. If you all could see her look. <laughs> it, it, it is
1: facing the NCAA. It is facing every state. It is facing every booster club and alumni group. It is facing us all. Um, is this the business of sport becoming a professional business? at the collegiate level.
0: Yeah. And there, and I mean, there's, I mean, we could do a whole podcast could, on NIL. Absolutely. And, <laughs> you know, and the, sort of the issue, some of the benefits that we've seen, the positives, a lot of the negatives that we've seen. Um, but when you think about Title IX equity, right, mm-hmm. there are some very specific th- questions that NIL brings up for, again, creating equity mm-hmm. for both male and female athletes. And so- yep. You know, as an athletic director, how are you navigating that? How have you seen your uh, colleagues at other schools navigating, creating equity in that kind of space?
1: Yeah, I think um, the first thing that has popped up is companies that are managing NIO for Um, institutions. I think a big part of it is really coming down to how do we do it here? Because it really is controlled at the state level. It's, it's not a, na- a national ban that just is kind of put over the country and it's all the same for everyone. You know, it's not. You have to kind of look at how your state functions and the parameters within that. And then, of course, you're going to have big time NIL deals and then you're going to have small NIL deals. I think the biggest part is from my space is education, right? My job is to make sure that I educate those who want to access this opportunity on the decisions that they're making. The decision's not mine to make, right? Because it it is already clear that you own your name, image, and life. But who owns part of the image that creates your image is where it starts getting dicey. And we're
0: getting deep, yeah.
1: Right? Colleges (laughs) and universities, right? Before any of the current student-athletes show up to UF, was UF UF before they came? So then when they show up, they may be an incredible UF student-athlete, but would they be that same athlete without UF? Would they have that same visibility? Would they have mm-hmm. that that same grouping of wanting to connect? I don't know. Maybe. Maybe not. But what part of your name, image, and likeness is based off of your connection to your college or university? And I think that's where it starts getting really dicey for people. Um, at least at my institution, and I would say for many Division three institutions. The most difficult part is the education for our students because they're not going up against scholarship. Mm-hmm. You know, so if I have a student that comes to me and say, you know, they've been contacted by someone who wants them to, you know, distribute some of their gear or have their face as part of their brand and it's all being done online and they're going to get this gear and, you know, a $5,000, you know, contract with them. Well, that's $5,000 cash. But there's also a value to that gear that you're getting, right, which they now have to learn about because that's not something that they, they knew about beforehand. And since you're not on scholarship, that's actual income. So now how does that income affect your family contribution to what you pay to go to school? Will that income knock you out of a bracket for the grants and aids that you've been getting? So are you going to end up now having to pay more for school than you were previously? Mm-hmm. Right, like we have to think about this differently. So from my stage, it is education. Here are the things that you need to look at. What does this do to any of your grants? What does this do to any of your scholarships? If it does, what does this do to your family contribution? Are you going to be making enough to where now it is taxable income? Like what are the things that you need to consider before you make this decision? And now once you make the decision, it's, it's yours to have to deal with on the back end. But that's more of what we're dealing with, you know, at my level um, and on my campus. But I think if we're talking more of the national conversation, there's an overall lack of education and you get really deep into the dialogue when you're trying to figure out who's on first, right? What came first, the chicken or the egg? Did UF come first or that exceptional student athlete come first?
0: Yeah, it's, it's tough. And then, uh, you know, when you mentioned access earlier and this idea of like, you know, the Title IX provides access. Mm-hmm. And now we think about what does access to NIL look like, right? So, <sighs> you know, you mentioned the UF brand and the power of the UF brand is the UF brand as strong for a softball player as it is for a football player as it is for a baseball player, right? So Mm -hmm. uh, there's a lot of layers. Right. And And it can't possibly
1: be, right? Because every brand is built off of what came before. So as you look at even your younger sports at, at any institution, the younger sports normally have a weaker alumni base because they're, they're all young. They're, they're not making the hundreds of thousands of dollars yet, right? They normally have a weaker alumni base, but they also haven't found like longstanding success yet. And that's what really kind of builds up when you can look on a wall and be able to say, here are all the professional athletes from this sport. You can't do that with a new sport. Right? So it even makes it harder to go and find those exceptional students to bring in to be athletes. So you just have a little bit of a learning curve. So the idea that you could be equal on how you provide access to all of your sports when it comes to NIL, it's not really possible, which is why it's trying you're having like these different groups pop up to manage that because should UF be managing that? State of Florida will determine that, you know, if that's something that they should be managing or not. But I think a big part that needs to be considered is if I come to UF and I'm on the underwater basket weaving team, <laughs> should I have the same access to NIL deals as the gymnast who is an All-American? Regardless of gender, I would say the answer is probably no. All right. But how UF decides to manage that. And the parameters the state of Florida puts them under is a dicey deal for them to have to figure out. <laughs>
0: yeah. Yeah. And I think I think part of the problem is that it's everything is still kind of unfolding and unraveling. And so you don't really know what's coming next or what the next year is going to look like or how, you know, how people are going to use yeah, this. And yeah,
1: it's, so. it's still so it, it's up in the air. You know, so much of it is up in the air. Um, and then there's so much coming at you so quickly. You know, there's not a day that I don't open my inbox where someone's not telling me about their business on how they can help us manage NIL for our student. Well, I don't really need you to manage NIL for me because that's not like I'm not in the weeds of doing that currently. If we decide to go that direction, it's going to be a full college decision to go that direction. Outside of that, my laws state that you have to report it to me. I have to be aware. I have to provide you education and the decision is yours. The same way you decide if you want to take that job or not, you decide if you want to continue to be a student athlete or not. We're not handcuffing you with scholarship dollars and we're not handcuffing you with anything else. The choice is yours. We're just required to educate you. Um, And I think that's one of the things that at least makes my life a little bit easier right now (laughs) (laughs) is that, you know, I don't have to be deeply in the weeds with this right now. Um, but the time is coming soon where we'll all have to be much more in the weeds because we're starting to border on that line of our athletes becoming employees.
0: Yeah. And I, I also think there's the issue of, you know, at what point athletes will develop their own brands. So, you know, you talked about the UF band brand, the Barry brand, and mm-hmm. sort of attaching that to yourself. Well, you know, some of these athletes are going to start their own brands and their own deals in middle school, high school, right? And so mm-hmm. they're going to come in with their own brand Absolutely. And, and it's going to require new considerations. Yeah, I mean, I, I
1: foresee that there will always be that exceptional athlete um, for like a team sport or something like that, young, you know, I think we all remember, you know, when LeBron was in high school and people were traveling from around the country to go to Ohio, I mean, Ohio, uh, to, to see him play. And he was, he was a man am- among children, right? We all remember that, you know, as, as this moves forward, we talk about kids becoming their own brand. I don't see it being high school kids that are becoming their own brand. And I don't see it being the football player, the basketball player becoming this huge brand. There'll be some of those, but there are already athletes that basically are a brand. Their, their sport already pushes towards it, right? Uh, tennis athletes are having star ratings from the times that they're kids. Like They go on to professional status well before they even graduate from high school, right? When you start looking at those type of individualized specialty athletes, they, their sport is building a brand for them before they even know, you know what a brand is or how to identify that. And the way that they function on social media now, yeah, they're all creating their own brand. It just turns out, is it going to be a brand that you can monetize in a way that someone else would want to be connected to? Right. Is Nike going to want to be connected to you and what your brand is prior to you coming and being a UF student athlete or, or whatever the place may be?
0: And do you think something like that would help uh, girls and women in, in, the, in a similar way that maybe like Title IX has? Or do you think it would it'll complicate things even further?
1: Oh, it, it's going to have continued complications. <laughs> it, it absolutely is. Um, good, bad or indifferent men's sports in the United States are still more heavily watched and supported um, than, than women's sports are. Um, I don't love it, oh. but it, it just is at this point. And I think we're doing some good things to try and push and challenge groups and making sure that we're holding ourselves accountable. You know, we, we remember a couple of uh, years ago when the imagery went up, about the NCAA women's basketball tournament accommodations and meals and uh, I guess we'll call it a weight room facility. (laughs) And and then what you're seeing on the men's side. And now look, being in the business, I understand there are sometimes you'll go to some places, some locations, and they just don't have all of the same stuff. That's one thing. Um, But it's another thing to be oblivious of that beforehand. And you may have to make some different decisions as management and leadership when you think about how you equitably put on championship,
0: Yeah, I think, I think that example, actually, the, the NCAA Mar- the March Madness, or what is now March Madness for both men and women. But mm-hmm. uh, I think that that was a super, really good example of how it wasn't equal, but it was also very clear to people that it also wasn't equitable. <laughs>
1: Correct, right? I, it's not always going to be equal, right? And maybe, maybe the facilities were the same stuff. Maybe- they had all the equipment that the women needed for their weight room facility. And maybe there was different equipment in the men's facility. But if you told me that of the teams that were there, 95% of them only used Nautilus style equipment in season for their women's programs. And on the men's side, they were only using powerlifting equipment. And that's what the weight rooms look like. Okay, it is equitable for what those programs need to compete at the highest level and on the largest stage, which this is for NCAA sports, right? Got it. But equal nor equitable was a part of that conversation. And maybe it was the city that they were in, the hotel that they chose. Maybe it was COVID. Maybe it was UPS. I don't know. But I just know that it was absolutely not equitable.
0: <laughs> I think, I think, I think it was your answer earlier, which was decision making. <laughs> hey,
1: when you want to be in those chairs, you got to be accountable to the decisions you
0: make. That's right. That's right. Um, but I did want to talk a little bit more about equity in this space, because when we talk about resources, right, one of the things that we are talking about is human resources, mm-hmm. right? And we know that, uh, you know, athletes, uh, yeah, students, right, Any anyone learning in the space, like learns better. Performs better when they have uh, people who look like them in leadership roles, people they can identify with. Mm. And uh, you mentioned earlier that there has been this shift. There are more women in administrative roles. There are more women in in coaching roles, right? But if you look at the statistics, it's still right. It's it's we're we're seeing you know more men coaching women's teams than we ever had before. And, and and we're not seeing the same kind of transition from women coaching men's teams. Mm-hmm. Um, and so what challenges, I guess, as a director of athletics and as someone really embedded, you know, with the NCAA, like, what, what challenges do you still see in terms of providing that kind of equity for our student, for our, your college athletes?
1: Yeah, um, I'd say a big part is, we have to get into the space where especially women, see this as a career journey. Um, I think it was, a, it was a passion project early on, pre-Title IX for sure. Um, I think a lot of people stayed with it for their overall love of the sport um, and wanting to be there and, and wanting to help mold young women. And then when it became heavily monetized, came down to who was already in the seat um, and who you knew. Um, And the people that you knew tend to look like the people that were in the seat making the decision, right? And now then we go very, very far down that line. And we've spent the last however many years trying to turn the tide a little bit. So every time you look up, we're still having a bunch of firsts. Um, And it, it seems a little crazy that we would still be having all these firsts, but we are because you're in the midst of turning the tide right? Um, I think we're doing better than we have been because students are the ones holding us accountable. And like, rather we like to admit it or not, I only have a job because there are young people who want to be collegiate student-athletes and they're choosing to do that because Barry College offers it. If there were no student-athletes to serve, there's no reason for me to be present, right? So, I think we're, we're getting to this place where students are holding us accountable on a level we have not seen before. And so it's forcing decision makers to say, okay, what's next for us? What's right for us? Where do we want to go next? And as we do that, there's a responsibility for the people that are the first. And we don't have to like it. You know, the women and men that fought to get Title IX passed didn't like it. But it had to be done in order for them to be able to change the trajectory of access for women. And so for people that are first, there's a responsibility there. There there just is. I do believe that people being able to see individuals that look like them in place of leadership is helpful. Um, I think that it allows them to believe that they can do, if not that same exact thing, something that pulls the same traits in them doing it someplace else right? Seeing women in leadership shows other young women that they can lead in whatever their trade is, in whatever their line of business. If they want to be an entrepreneur themselves, they know that they can lead and manage people like them and people that are not like them. Um, it, minorities in the same token, right? If we don't have minorities in leadership, Will young minorities believe that they could be in those spaces? Some people would say yes. I would say no. Right. They're, the majority will not. There will always be trailblazers. Right? You're always going to have that that diamond, which is incredible. And you love it. Right. It's the story that you hold on to. But that's not the norm. Right. And so until we begin to change the norm a bit. Yeah, we, we're going to have to make some tough decisions. We're going to have to put some people in some places that are uncomfortable. And then when you get people in decision-making seats, they're going to have to consider the representation that they're putting out there. Am I saying that every time I have a head coaching or assistant coaching position, it has to be, and it happens to be over a women's sport, that I'm only going to hire a woman? Absolutely not. I'm going to hire the best person to be able to serve my student athletes based on the program that I have at the time. And at the time, if what I need is somebody that's high energy, somebody that can like be in the weeds with them, someone that they can feel like they can build a program with, then I'm looking for one type of coach. But if I have a strong established program that has been championship success, I need to go and find someone who knows how to be a champion and that young people can follow and respect because their resume brings that with them. But none of that has a gender connected to it. I'm looking for the best possible person. But I do have to make sure that I have a diverse group of people in my pool if I'm actually going to try and find the best overall person. I can't have a pool full of all white males and then say I'm looking for the best possible person where well, you only have one type of person in the pool.
0: Yeah, and I, I think that really goes back to the, the, what we were talking about at the beginning with access, right, mm-hmm. is, is if these people are not in front of you, if these people are not in in your network if you don't know who these people are if you're not looking if they're not in your consideration set then yeah, there's you, no chance
1: yeah you have to go find them you know um <laughs> a couple of years ago we had a, a we were thinking about going into a search and, and we had some other things that took place but I actually went to a national convention for the sport that sports national convention to meet people and to figure out where folks were what type of schools they were at what type of positions they were in because There are certain sports that are not highly accessible to ethnic minorities. You just don't see a lot of them competing in it. You don't see it in a lot of communities that happen to be predominantly um, diverse in in, in that way. You don't see the sport. Um, And so there's going to be few and far between. So that's the other part of equity. I don't expect to see the same amount of ethnic minorities apply for a job. Or for me to even have access to for a swim and dive position as I would for a basketball or a track and field or a football position, right? Those are sports that actually are highly populated with ethnic minorities, right? And so that's a part of the consideration as well. So if I have, let's just say out of, out of 50 applicants in a swim and dive position, I have three ethnic minorities, I'm winning. For that sport, I'm winning. But if that's a men's or women's basketball cert, and I only have three ethnic minorities, I'm like, well, we're not moving forward with this search yet. We got to do some more recruiting. We got to, you know, hit some more groups. You got to call your network a little more and see who's out there before we can move forward with it. So it also depends on the sport. It's it's not all the same. It's not possible to be equal.
0: Yeah. Well, and again, I think that comes back to what we were talking about at the very beginning, right, with this idea of youth access right and that you know some uh groups you know some sports are more expensive than others some uh sports are more welcoming and inclusive than others um and uh that that starts there right you're not you're not typically gonna have people who didn't play the sport just say hey i'm gonna i'm gonna go become a swim and dive coach right so So that really, when you talk about that path, right, that path, that career path, mm-hmm. it really has to start with participation too. Right.
1: It, it has to start with some amount of access and participation. You know, you look at community. How many communities have swimming pools? How many kids mm-hmm. get to high school and don't know how to swim or don't even have a pool at their high school to take a class to learn? How, right. Like it is access. If You don't have access to the thing. How do you learn it? You know, I have, a, I have a lacrosse team, both men's and women's, and people are like, you got lacrosse in the South? Like, there aren't very many teams down here. Yeah, there aren't that that many teams, but there aren't very many communities that have lacrosse in junior high or high school, right? So, and it is a pricey sport, right? I also have equestrian. People aren't just rolling around, picking up horses. <laughs> Learning how to ride and running out there to go compete around the country, right? It is a sport where you, you have to have a different type of resources or you have to have some community resource that allows access to individuals regardless of their ability to have the financial resources to be a part of it, right? So it, the access is the biggest part.
0: Yeah. Absolutely. And that's a whole other podcast, I think. <laughs> <laughs> you want to come back next week? <laughs> hey, you know what?
1: Uh, if, if the flights are better, absolutely.
0: <laughs> <laughs> well, we're so glad you made it. Um, and uh, we're so glad that you're able to join us uh, for, this, uh, for this chat. And, uh, you know, it's uh, the issues of equity, Title IX, NIL, all of these things, I think, are just going to, you know, continue to uh, have to be worked through. Yeah, by, by willing participants. And
1: you, you hit the nail on the head. There has to be willing participation and people that actually want to try and come to solution, right? We can't just keep standing on different ends of the table and, and throwing the heavier gavel at one another. At some point in time, we have to get to a place of saying, what is it that we're trying to create? What is this new realm of business of sport? Because rather people like to admit it or not, regardless of division or level, intercollegiate athletics is a business. And it is a business within the business of higher ed. And we need to be honest about that first. And then we can start to work through the difficulties of this business. What are our shortcomings? What are the possible resolutions to that? And how do we move forward? If we can get there, I mean, I think there's a great 50, 60, 70 years in front of us, but the next 10 are probably going to be dicey.
0: Well, it's taken us 50 to get here, so. (laughs) Yeah, the next 10
1: are going to be are going to be quite dicey. Um, And some people in some institutions and some places are going to manage it better um, and they're going to manage it better because they have leadership that chooses to. They choose to be deeply in the weeds on how we serve young people. And so we'll see where we'll see where we
0: land. We'll be back here in ten years' time for a for a status update. <laughs> we'll meet. We will meet here. Yeah, we will meet here. Well, thanks so much to all of our listeners who, who uh, stuck around, and uh, uh, we'll see who's uh, who's on next week. Mike Segas might be back. I don't know, but uh, we'll be off. Uh, try to meet people where they are. Awesome. Thanks so much for having me. <laughs>